Today on the LA Countdown, the podcast, I'm Lucas Servodio, and we're bringing you an episode so spicy, even Padma Lakshmi might ask for a glass of milk. To celebrate the imminent return of Top Chef, Cousin Saul and I are going to attempt to create the greatest cooking competition show of all time. Join us as we brainstorm the kind of contestants, judges, stakes, and settings that would guarantee television gold. And if you're an exec at a major network listening to this, I'm just saying my DMs are open. But first, we're joined by Christy Vega, president and owner of the legendary Casa Vega in Sherman Oaks, to talk about the new L.A. City proposal that threatens to do away with the L.A. Alfresco program. The Alfresco program was introduced during the pandemic and was instrumental in allowing restaurants to keep the lights on by quickly opening outdoor dining areas. The city's latest proposal could undo all of that, and Christy joins us to explain just how serious that could be for the fortunes of L.A.'s restaurants. So without further Further ado, let's chow down. Okay, today we are joined. I am very excited because we are joined by the powerhouse owner of the legendary Casa Vega and Sherman Oaks. It's Christy Vega. Christy, thanks for being on the podcast. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you. Good, good, good. Well, let me begin with the question all of the listeners are wondering about. And what, what is it like to be an honorary Kardashian? <laughs> oh, if I could only be so lucky. <laughs> yeah. For those of you who don't know, I, uh, the, the Kardashian family just had their Christmas party uh, at Casa Vega, and they've been there about a gazillion times. Does that count accurate? That is very accurate. It was actually um, Chris and Robert's first date location, um, Kardashian. No is Casa Vega. So they've been loyal clients for, gosh, um, you know, 40 years now. And uh, we've known the girls since they were little and in elementary school. And, um, and that's why the families are, are so close. And we love that they support small local businesses. You know, they're fancy. They could go to Nobu or any fancy place in LA and they always support the local little guys. Yeah, I, I love that. And what, what I love most about that is, to your point, you know, most celebs are spotted at the, the new hot spots. And Casa Vega is a hot but hot spot, but it's not new. Uh, it's been around since 1956, right? Right. Yeah, it's definitely not new. So um, the fact that they support us and our workers means everything. Yeah, that's really cool. And and so going back to 1956, which uh, you weren't around then, obviously, but... <laughs> no. uh, <laughs> But your your dad was the legendary Ray Vega, and I, I was wondering if you have any any anecdotes about those early days because I, I can't imagine there were a ton of restaurants like Casa Vega in LA in 1956. Absolutely not. I mean, we were the first sit down Mexican restaurant on Ventura Boulevard. So that was huge and revolutionary. Um, he opened it at the age of 22, about two years after his parents place went under um that had been thriving on Alvera Street for 18 years and then they moved it to Hollywood and Vine thinking that uh, since Alvera Street became a park that they were going to outlaw liquor and they were mm. hit with racism they did not want a Latino restaurant owners or Latino business owners outside of downtown LA so um so it did not go well they thought it would be okay because of El Coyote went out um, yeah they're they're all white owned. Um, so it went under and then he was working catering jobs and selling life insurance to support his parents who were incredibly depressed. 
And they met, he met someone who remembered the family from Alvaro Street and was like, oh my God, the Vegas, you have to open. I have a property on Ventura Boulevard you can have for three months free. Um, and it was actually, it's just down the street from us now at Mary Ellen and Ventura. Um, we moved to this location two years later after it became really busy. So it was one of those things where the family business kind of went up in flames and my dad came back to help support his parents and then karma came and we opened Casa Vega and it's been a success ever since. That's but crazy. Father so made me go to business school because he was horrified about of the family losing the business. And it's something that's always been in our family that, you know, businesses, they can come, but they can easily be lost too. So he made me make sure I knew how to read a financial statement and the, and how important business was. Yeah, that's real. So were you always, you know, was the plan always for you to take over or did you always know that? Or was there a moment where, you know, it really hit you. This is what I want to do. My father was a serial entrepreneur. Actually, Las Vega was his first little business and his smallest. He went on to do major distribution companies um, for casinos and different things in Nevada. So I always knew I would I wanted to be an entrepreneur like him, and I always wanted to work in one of his businesses and carry on the amazing legacy that he did as a little immigrant to do all of this. Um, but I didn't really know the restaurant. And then when I came here, I was only 22 myself, and mm -hmm. I wanted to get in the kitchen and my dad said nope you're gonna go pay the bills and you're gonna do this and about I would say about within a month here I went to him and said I don't want to do any other business my heart and soul is here I love everything about Casa Vega as I already knew but what was the difference of his other businesses was Casa Vega was his first so everybody that worked here was family or mm -hmm family because they'd worked for us for so long everybody was uh, Latino and it was just such a good vibe that I could immediately tell the the huge responsibility we had to make sure that our workers were always had a paycheck that their families were always fed and that the love and support that I get from the staff is something that I could never ever replace and I knew from the moment that I first started greeting customers and introducing myself and realizing what an important place this held in other people's lives and that in combination with my huge attachment to my employees it was a no-brainer that this is what I was going to do. Yeah, that's really cool. But I, I read that you have worn many hats within the restaurant. You've, you, you've worked in the kitchen too. Is yeah. that right? Yes, I've done everything. So I, you know, the kitchen is probably where I'm the happiest. But my, like I said, I've been the accountant, the bookkeeper, the purchaser, the inventory manager, the inventory sweeper. I've been the line cook, the dishwasher, the kitchen prep. Um, I've remade, I, I put my items on the menu time and time again. I redid the entire bar program as it is today. I've been the host. I've served. I bust tables to this day. Yeah. There's nothing in this operation that, that I haven't done. That's really cool. I mean, y you talk about bringing new items onto the menu. You know, that sounds like a, a risky endeavor at a restaurant that has such a loyal <laughs> customer base. I'm curious, how do you go about that? Do you have you have you, you know, taken off any menu items that, you know, customers have been upset about or, or have any of your new ones been shocking successes that you've been pleasantly surprised with yes i mean a lot of them have been successes like our lobster enchiladas is massive massive success and our oh yeah tacos and some of the more grilled and seafood items 
have all been success. But yes, it's a very fine rope because I don't want to ever tarnish anything that made Casa Vega what it is today. And I want to honor the tradition and our old school kind of comfort food vibe. But um, but that doesn't doesn't stop me from bringing in things. I am going to be trimming the menu. And this this year, I plan to keep all the, our most favorite items. Um, and, but I am going to dwindle it down a little bit. And I hope bring on some really impressive things, just a few regional items that I feel like represent us really well. And um, I'm also going to be bringing the table side Caesar to Casa Vega. Oh, cool. That's so, so cool. Super fun because my family owns Hotel Caesar where the Caesar salad was invented in Tijuana. And so they are going to come up. My cousin Javier Placencia, who is a really well-known, amazing Mexican chef. I think he just got um, chef of the year for um, the Mexico in general um, just last month. And so he's going to be coming up, bringing the Caesar salad, training the staff, and we're going to be connecting the two restaurants. So everyone knows exactly where we're from. That is so cool. <laughs> Cool. The OG Caesar salad is coming mm-hmm. to Casa Vega. Mm-hmm. Made by Caesar Cardini in Tijuana, Mexico, not Italy. <laughs> yeah, you know what? That actually makes a lot. I'm from Italy, and uh, guess what? We don't have there Caesar salad. Yes, so. it's not invented there. It was yeah. an Italian in Mexico. <laughs> That's really cool. Good to know. So, can you give yeah. us any other teasers of, of things that'll come be coming to the menu? Those regional specialties you, you mentioned. Yes, I have some of um, some bite-sized tamales that I'm going to be putting on the menu, which is really good. And what's going to be different about those is in uh, at Casa Vega with our our tamales, we use a red salsa for the dough, and this time I'm bringing in a green salsa, and it has chicken inside with a smoked tequila sauce and some queso fresco. It, they're amazing. It's just little things to kind of t- tweak it and make sure that Casa Vega does not become irrelevant as we go through go through the generations. Yeah, no, I love that. I mean, they the LA Times, I'm sure you saw, just did uh, last year a, a long list on sort of the 38 classic restaurant Mexican restaurants in Los Angeles. Um, I believe you all were on that. But I think, you know, that's one thing that really makes Casa Vegas stand out is the innovation you're constantly doing. You're constantly sort of thinking about new ways to, to you know, uh, make the food interesting, exciting. You just invited Adam Perry Lang, right, to do a barbecue pop-up? Yeah, so that's been a lot of fun. Um, it, we've had a great time with it, and Adam is an amazing, you know, renowned chef, and for him to come here and pop up barbecue for our customers and his and then alongside that we serve margaritas and micheladas it's such a great experience it's so nice for the community it, people are outside they're enjoying the weather they're with their families and there's you know really not a lot in LA right now that we can be proud of or happy about and the city is divided it's in angst we live in filth um, but one thing that that does bring people always together is food and yeah. so we can have fun experiences and creative restaurateurs and people in food get together to do this for not only ourselves, but our community makes us feel really good. Yeah. Well, look, I think that's a perfect uh, segue uh, into sort of the, the meat of this conversation, which is really a lot of what's happening to L.A. restaurants currently. I mean, you've been an extremely vocal leader in terms of the business community, in terms of advocating for policies and ordinances that really help restaurants at a time that 
they've really been struggling. So maybe it makes sense to zoom out and talk a little bit about the pandemic and what it was like to wake up during those days of March and April and, and, and going forward in 2020, what it was like to be the leader of a restaurant during those incredibly difficult times. Yeah, I mean, I still have post-traumatic stress from it. I don't think I'm, I'm quite over it. And I don't feel like restaurant owners and the restaurant community has even caught our breath or been able to sit down and take a, oh my gosh, like we made it because we haven't. So um, from the minute we got shut down, all of us lost tens of thousand dollars already in inventory. We're laying off our staffs. We're devastated. We don't know if we're able to come back, when we're able to come back. It was a really dark time. I mean, the only thing that kept me from not being so dark is Mr. Cartoon showed up and did like a mural as I was like locking the door and crying um you know <laughs> there's cars yeah. painting um but um but it was really hard and then when they gave us this lifeline of oh my gosh there's going to be you know um this ppp money and an economic disaster loan i thought okay maybe we're not done we can get back up but you know casa vega was the worst place for covid i mean we have no windows we are we we yeah we- on shoulder brushing and shoulder rubbing and that was the worst thing in the world and then when the ppp came in you had all this money that you had to spend in eight weeks it was crazy it was like brewster's millions with payroll so luckily i got all my employees back on 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 payroll but we were paying hero pay and this pay and that pay so all of that first relief round of money went directly to the workers the restaurants did not get a dime of it but in that time i was able to do a drive-through and i was able to kind of convert Um, this old school restaurant into what we could do. And I did that because I had already mocked up to go into stadiums, you know, what would be a Casa Vega kind of express. So I took books and applied it to the drive-through was a massive success. We, I thank this town so much. They were not going to let Casa Vega go away. We blocked traffic for miles on Cinco de Mayo. (laughs) Everybody (laughs) support us, which was, it felt so good. And so from that, I was able to make a little bit of money, um, which I immediately, Immediately siphoned into a separate account because I knew outdoor dining was coming. I was watching what was happening in New York. I was watching what was happening all around the nation. I knew the pandemic was not going anywhere. You could just, you know, you could see what was happening in other areas such as Seattle. You know, it was going to here to stay. So I started designing the outdoor spaces on our parking lots and working mm-hmm. with rental companies. And so then, when the city allowed us to reopen, I was ready to go with a plan and. We did it within, I think, six days. I got both tents up, and that was a massive expense because you have to pay for the rentals on those tents. I had to go buy all new furniture and chairs because Casa Vega is all boost. There was nothing to move outside. Mm-hmm. So I got money out there. And again, I didn't really have any money. I was kind of broke at this point. But with a little bit that I did have, I thought I want people in my community, even if I don't make anything, I want them to feel a little break. I want them to get out of their homes and have a margarita in a setting that doesn't so much look like a parking lot. So I put trees and plants and hug ferns and did everything I can thinking that this is what we were supposed to do as a good community member. Um, I did that. We were a massive success. The first day that we were able to open, we replicated sales. Wow. So that was a huge, and I was the first one to do it. I had other restaurant owners being like, what are you doing? You're investing too much money into this. And it was the exact right call. And the community supported us in full. I actually had buses of retirement home communities come. And that was the biggest compliment all day. Oh, wow. 
they would come because it was where they felt the safest because our tables were 12 feet apart and we took all these extreme measures to make sure everybody felt really safe. So it's yeah. so proud of what had happened. And then as you know, that following Thanksgiving, um, they shut down outdoor dining again, the city. And this is when I started to get really vocal with the city because at first I thought we were partners. Yeah. And Wait, so real quick, real quick. So this was, so now we're talking about November, 2020, they did this. Mm-hmm. And so, and so this outdoor dining that you set up, this was, was this all made possible by the original, what they called the alfresco ordinance? Yeah. So this was all made possible by the alfresco ordinance. The, be- uh, the ordinance, the best thing LA city did was instate this and give us the opportunity to be able to serve outside. But I think it's getting somewhat confused in some of the media that I hear. They call it a lifeline. They call it a, you know, they did this to restaurants to be nice to us. No, they forced us into outdoor dining saying that was the only way we could operate. Uh huh. Got it. So, but not like that they gave us outdoor dining and let us seat people inside. They said, you're shut down inside. Got if it. you want to serve food, you must do it outside. Right. And the way that they, quote unquote, sweetened the deal is they cut some of the red tape that is usually there for serving outside. Is that right? Exactly. So it's almost that's why there hasn't been any outdoor dining and we are not the leaders of outdoor dining as we should be with this client or climate before this happened, because there's so much red tape and expense in the city of L.A. to get something through like this. And the politicians don't care to ever clean it up, that that's why it doesn't exist. So with the LL Fresco, it was a push of a button. We were permitted done and push of a button. We're permitted with the ABC for the liquor and done. Easy, yeah, because usually that's a process that takes months, costs tens of thousands oh. of dollars, right? And not to mention the infrastructure that needs to be there in order to accommodate folks, including patios, roofs, whatever, right? Oh, it takes years. Oh, so wow. CUP permit is an 18 to 24 month waiting period. The CUP cost of a, of a conditional use permit is $37,000 to the city. There's an $8,000 city fee for expediting in addition to that to navigate the two years of bureaucracy because CUPs are known as impossible to get. We've tried before, Las Vegas can get. Yeah. That, that they are impossible to get that when you do, um, you have to hire a consultant mm. of $20. And then you have to have pay at least eight to ten thousand dollars in fees to have things drafted up that the building um, department will take. So for one business to do a CUP is somewhere between fifty and sixty thousand dollars. What is proposed in this new ordinance is that you would have to have almost I would have to have three CUPs. Wow, for what for the, so basically let, let's let's uh, go down the timeline. So the Alfresco ordinance uh, comes down during COVID. It cuts some of this red tape, which allows you to set up this outdoor dining. However, now the city is proposing something different. It's saying it, it's saying that it's going to revise the alfresco program, and it's now requiring a lot of permits to basically just allow you to do what to keep doing what you've been doing this whole time. Is that right? Exactly. Do what you were doing. Everything we've been doing at no cost right now, they want to basically make it quote unquote permanent, which they could with one sentence. Every the all al fresco is now permanent and codified. That's all they have to do. Yeah. They don't have to attach all the permits and the fees and the red tape, but then they lose out on all that money, which is a shame that they're using 
small business owners' backs to get money when I talk to the mayor's office and we're the amount of money that is coming into LA is ridiculous. Like hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars, billion dollars. And they want more money from small business owners that, you know, and, and as we talk about the pandemic, what makes me so upset about this whole thing is that we're maybe the city thinks COVID has gone away, but the County doesn't, they're still mm-hmm. resting sending everyone to mask indoors. Besides that, we have now our economic disaster loans, which we use to build these patios to, to deal or put them up and take them down. The city had us, you know, shut down, put up the patios, take it down, put up the patio, shut it down. That was all used with this money. The loans are just now due. We yeah. have huge debt. And in, in addition to that, worker stability. Our workers have been through so much. They have had no job security. They have been treated horribly by LA City. Their jobs, they were used as disposables. People that, you know, they, they, they were given no regard. We barely got any relief money. The Restaurant Revitalization Fund was a joke. But our poor workers. So as of this, now with my patio, I employ 12 more people. Yeah, those people will lose their jobs if the patio becomes an economic barrier and too expensive. And so I understand what we're doing. These workers, they fed this town in the pandemic. We worked in face masks, in face shields. We enforced vaccine mandates and mask mandates. We delivered things to people's trunks, contactless to make everybody else feel safe. And this is what the city asked of us. We, we did it. Restaurant workers were there. We were serving people so that everyone else could have a reprieve. Yeah. We were killing ourselves. And mind you, we're people too. We had, like myself, we were dealing with our own COVID issues. Yeah. We were getting sick. Our family members were dying, just like everyone else. And we still came to work to feed the public. Yeah. I mean, and you're talking from the perspective of one restaurant where 12 people could lose their jobs. You multiply that across the entire landscape of restaurants that have been able to expand staffs because of the Alfresco ordinance. We're looking at potentially massive unemployment there, right? Massive unemployment in a city that has a huge homeless crisis. Also, it would reduce the city's sales tax considerably. None of this makes any sense. It's not good for LA as there's so much in this proposal besides the crazy permit fees that is a complete money grab on an abused industry already. Other things are you can't hold a private event. Yeah. Which is crazy. So I can't have a baby shower on my patio. I can't, you know, I can't have a birthday party or a celebrate. The Kardashians can't rent the patio. Why? Like, why would they strangle my business? And it's so hard because the city has also brainwashed us all. And by saying the last three years that only outdoor events are safe. Yeah. And so now it's not politically correct for my customers and a lot of like the big, you know, the the big corporations that do events here. They'll only do it outside. Because it's not worth the liability of them or that, or maybe they don't want to be disrespectful to the autoimmune community or a guest in their place. It's just, it's, I don't understand what the city is doing. They also said we can only have 42 inch pony walls, which I think is 
is so ridiculous. I just walled up our patio in 96 inch walls to keep out the homeless from coming on every single night and day and touching customers' foods and bothering people and attacking my, 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 my staff. I had a busboy stabbed by oh, at 10 a.m. coming off the bus to serve beans and rice. They, you know, if it's not completely secured and locked up, we're not safe. Yeah, I mean, the city is arguing that they need to do something in order to codify, codify the uh, the alfresco ordinance. I'm wondering, you know, codify what? It. Right. I'm I'm wondering what what is the what what should we be advocating here that they basically codify the program, but just leave it as was demonstrate, Hey, this worked, this helped businesses. We can keep it like this. Let's just codify it. The question is what's broken. What's not everything. Nothing's broken. It's all working. Codify it. If you want to codify it, codify it Uh, in the LA Alfresco. There's already good neighbor policies that you can't have noise past a certain time that your patio must close at a certain time, that the floors must be washed every night, that it must be kept clean. All of these things are good neighbor policies are already in. And if you wanted to take it above and beyond and, you know, add some landscaping requirements or like in my patio, I put a ton of foliage because that absorbs noise. You know, there's mm-hmm. way around if, you know, proper lighting to defer crime. I, I'd make sure there are ADA regulations, that they're fire codes, that they're safe for the public. That no one is arguing. But, you know, and, and that's all they need to do. Anything above and beyond that is just government overreach and and it's going to be viewed as a money grab. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing the pandemic showed us is that like there are a lot of things in our society that don't need to be the way they are. I mean, think about work from home, right? I mean, right. it was unthinkable that folks would be able to work from home uh, before the pandemic. And now it's we've seen that it actually allows us to spend more time with our families. It allows us to get more exercise. It allows us to have more flexibility in our days. Things like, you know, even um, the, the, the fact that the government was able to help with with uh, uh, payments to people that needed it uh, in, during tough times. Uh, we've seen that there are measures that can be taken to help folks. And this feels like one that the government can do fairly easily. I, I'm curious, what can people do to help restaurants during these times in order to help you advocate? The, the best thing that people can do is to send in emails specifically to the mayor. Um, mayor Bass has a lot of pull with this. She could come out with a statement. We've been asking her to say that this is basically dead out of arrival and she will not let this happen to restaurant workers, the essential workers that fed this town, not on her dime, not on her watch. She's not going to let this happen. We're looking from that from the mayor. We're asking her for it. This does go to city council. So if everybody could please email their city council representative. I think Kerkorian is the leader of the city council. I'm placing calls to him and just trying to advocate that, you know, the quality of life is better in Los Angeles with outdoor dining. The jobs are better in Los Angeles. The the revenue for the city so that hopefully we can get back to street cleanings and mental health facilities is all of value to, to LA. You know, I always think that LA should be coded like Napa Valley. We mm. have a Amazing, amazing restaurants, amazing food community. And if we could be outdoor more, it would just give something LA to be proud of and rally behind. This town needs something to be happy about and we need something to be proud of. And we have such a great food scene if they would just support us.
Yeah, I mean, I it was I remember, you know, as someone who loves restaurants and going out to restaurants was very much a signal that like regular life was returning yeah. and and the the ability to be able to go do that outdoors was such a godsend and I I do think like the atmosphere that's been created by having more people on sidewalks eating or more people in 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 parking lots that have been like yours transformed into a, a really beautiful space it's created such a special environment uh, on the streets of LA it's been like a beautiful thing that's come out of a very tough moment exactly and I understand you know there's a few people that have spoken out saying well the one by me isn't as pretty or or the one in my you know area doesn't close as, as soon as you do or so let us let the city deal with those bad apples as they come up and if the city wouldn't take so much in fees it would allow a restaurateur more money for facilities yeah you know, all these fees and all that what the city hits us with those are mo- that's money that we use to buy plates and chairs and umbrellas and you know those are our profits and that's what we do with them and so the city has to also realize that business making profit is not a bad thing it actually equals into prettier cleaner environments yeah well chrissy you've got your finger on the pulse of a lot of different issues uh, that, you know, restaurant uh, and business owners, I should say, face, you know, what beyond this are you looking at in terms of uh, in terms of issues that you're thinking about? Yeah, I mean, one torch that I always carry is for um, the immigrant community of Los Angeles and of the nation. Um, I'm wildly passionate that immigrants make America the place it is today. My father was an immigrant. My grandparents, they came over with him as a small child and he was consulate general for the state for Mexico. And he really um, ingrained in me that being the daughter of an immigrant, it is my duty to speak up for the people that have no voices because they are the ones that pick our food, that clean our dishes, that clean our homes, that work the jobs that nobody else wants to do and that they need to be treated as human beings. And I think that that's why um, in the pandemic, I connected with Noah's Without You, and I'm wildly involved with that chat with that charity, and I'm extremely passionate about it. And that's what I brought in um, these collabs, because I had no money to help with these immigrants. But what I did have was celebrity clients. Mm-hmm. So we did taco collabs with fallout boy and the foo fighters and the chain smokers and dakota fanning and it was all to raise awareness on the fact that the in undocumented community are the ones that feed us yeah every form and they're human beings and they got not one cent of relief or money or food from the from the government when they shut us all down yeah I that I mean talk about completely forgotten segment of the population by government during that time, right? Uh, oh, completely forgotten. So Noah's without you activated, and um, you know I think there was like four hundred families, maybe even more, and you had to be a back of the house restaurant worker to get on. So it's not like we were feeding the homeless; we were feeding workers that were only out of work because their jobs were taken away. No one's without you wind up taking in the mariachi community of LA as well. Wow. And provided them with food, food boxes of $33 a week and feed a family. And it was amazing. Um, so what these guys have done 
And they, it was founded by two young, passionate Latino restaurant workers that walked out of a restaurant and thought, oh, my God, they were bartenders. What about the back of the house kitchen workers? Yeah. What do? And they took their own money and started this program. So great people can do great things. It doesn't take billions of dollars. It doesn't take bureaucracy. It doesn't take red tape. It doesn't take permits and fees to do good for people. And yeah. if city wants to make this what we're asking the mayor is come out and say not on my watch people i'm protecting the restaurants and the restaurant workers of la not on my watch do better all right well we will put a link to know us without you and also to uh you know our, more more resources on this on this topic and and also you know maybe also a contact link to the mayor's office in our yeah. show notes um but where can people find you christy on social media on the internet yeah, um, I'm definitely on social media, on Instagram, on uh, Christy Vega Official, um, and then Casa Vega is also on there as well. Awesome. Everybody go to Casa Vega I, and, and try that. Try those uh, those dishes that Christy talked about. They are absolutely delicious. I can't wait to try those new tamales. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> well, well, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Have a good day. Thanks to Christy Vega for being uh, such an incredible guest and talking us through the alfresco dining situation in Los Angeles. If you uh, want to learn more about Christy, go check out her Instagram. That's Christy Vega official. But now we're joined by the human equivalent of a Dominion voting machine. It's Cousin Salmon. <laughs> uh, un- un- unfair, unfair comparison. I'm taking you to court. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, everybody will know why I just called you that in just a moment. But before we get there, I wanted to know there's some interesting momentum in your campaign uh, to become infatuation Seattle social media intern. Is that right? I don't know. I don't know where or how you're seeing this momentum. I'm not familiar. If listeners recall, a couple episodes ago, we talked about a restaurant in Seattle called Camp Social House. Is that right? Oh, yes, of course. Yeah, yeah. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, the infatuation Seattle's Amy Rizzo included camp on a list this week. Uh, huh, best restaurants, best or hottest new restaurants in Seattle, I think it was. Um, so you're welcome, Amy, for the tip off. I'm just going to note here that the infatuation already had camp on their list for 2022 best restaurants. But I'm sure I feel confident in saying that Amy's uh, listening to this podcast, which I'm sure she did, reminded her of the quality of camp and she put it right back at the top. Yeah, look, I feel like there's a real case to be made that uh, your message is breaking through. So I think we just continue the watch and see what happens. I do like the role of being like a shadow influencer, kind of someone who's not officially on payroll, but seeding, seeding the best ideas. Um, my, my dream would be uh, not as a staff member of Infatuation, the uh, Salman's ideal list per the LA Countdown, the podcast uh, episodes for Seattle restaurants. That's, that's yeah. the goal. I mean, you should probably dream bigger, but okay. Uh, <laughs> speaking of campaigns and uh, Dominion voting machines, uh, you might not know this, but the people voted on uh, our recent uh, competition of who could come out with the best birthday night outs in LA. Oh, did they? That's nice. They did. What, they voted. What did they say? Okay, well, here are the results. Um, so basically, what happened is. Saul and I, in the last episode, did a draft of the best birthday night outs in Los Angeles. We each picked a restaurant and a bar. We went pick for pick. And um, 
we put the, put it up for a b- vote basically this week on Instagram, my picks against his. And so in the head-to-head, here's how it went down. Saul's pick, Guisados and Little Joy, got 52% of the vote. And Dilanon and the Let's Go got 48%. Mm-hmm. Bestia and Resident, which was Saul's pick, got 68% of the vote against Gelagetsa and Brass Monkey, which got Huge 32%. Upset. That was that was the heavyweight, I, heavyweight yeah, championship. Right well, there. hold on. Hold on rejoicing because the <laughs> listeners need to know what actually went on. Uh, third pick. And this is truly a remarkable uh, success story. Baraman the Edison got 45% of the vote. That was Cousin Saul's pick against Melody Winebar mm. with my pick, which got 55% of the vote. Mm. Via's Tacos and Block Party, Saul's pick, got 61% against Carousel and Jumbo's Clown Room. My pick, 39% of the vote. And finally, Salazar and Zebulon. Saul's pick got 59% of the vote against Lantica Pizzeria de Michele and the spare room 41%. That was my pick. So the final tally is four victories for Saul and one victory uh-huh. for me. That's right. Now, is there anything you want to say to defend yourself before I throw accusations of vote tampering? Oh, I, I, those, those are ridiculous accusations. I just happen to be someone who believes in voter education and engagement. I believe in a fair democracy and to ensure that the voters know the options they have in front of them and therefore made some folks that, uh, you know, I trust and believe and have good taste aware of, the, uh, aware of this particular election. He patently paid off, threatened, <laughs> and blackmailed all of the contacts he has on his phone to vote for him. It, honestly, this is the biggest steal uh, ever in the history of elections, uh, despite what some others might have you think. So it, it was like it was our January sixth. Well, like, this was February February fifteenth or February fourteenth, maybe the January sixth of uh, the LA count on the podcast, but one that was much more well run and executed, and therefore uh, my party comes out victorious. Shout no, out literally, I. I am this close to, to storming your apartment building in Seattle. <laughs> I am so close. Um, it was it's it was rigged, and the way we know this was rigged is because uh, first of all, Dila Nona and the Let's Go were literally crushing the vote, crushing the vote. It was like ninety percent to ten percent until the shadow campaign began, and they ended up losing fifty two percent to forty eight percent against Guisados and Little Joy, and. Yeah, I mean, great night out. Great night out. I, I don't see any problems here. <laughs> I, I what, just you're, think... what you're ultimately saying is that if only a small subset, your ideal handpicked voting block, had voted, you would win. But then now that the broader, the broader American populace, those who know and love LA, had a chance to submit their votes once they were made aware of the election, hey, the tides turn. And look, it can be it can I, be hard being the old guard. I'm sorry I, that I represent the people. Listen, but listen, uh, if, I would have had. <laughs> I would have had no problem if you went out to people and said, hey, guys, there's this awesome vote happening. It's a super cool like idea that me and Luca had. Go vote. You know, vote your conscience. Vote your vote your heart, you know. But you didn't do that. You told them exactly who to vote for. And hey, and th- I-, <laughs> <laughs> so- I, I, made, I made people aware of my picks, right? I was like, hey, 
you could do this. And by the way, I vote. And here are my restaurants right here. And you should vote for them. But I don't have a gun to their head. They can do whatever they want. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Fair enough. I mean, no, not fair enough. This is definitely <laughs> stop the steal. Stop it right now. And here's uh, here's the, the key piece of evidence that I have. And it's only one voter that I'm aware of actually went against my specific recommendation and voted for Jumbo's Clown Room because they were a fan of the place. I think that's a perfect illustration of how important a healthy, vibrant democracy is and why you can't just, you know, you can't just no, like, let, like... The, let the, self, the self-selected the self audience of Luca Servodio have their say. We got we to gotta have the people, the people involved at a more broad level. This is like when when Putin lets his opponent get like four votes, you know, <laughs> just to like be like, yeah, there was like, an election, like of course. I like that comp. Yeah, yeah, I'll take Putin. All right, look, uh, we're we're gonna say that the results of the vote were inconclusive, so we're gonna need to <laughs> we're gonna need to redo uh, that at some point. But in more important news, did you know that we're about three weeks away from the return of Top Chef? So I actually didn't until you put that uh, you put that on my radar. I obviously knew Top Chef was coming back soon, but I didn't know exactly when. Three weeks is exciting. It's really exciting. I mean, we've obviously just uh, had one of the most exciting uh, sporting events happen, aka the Super Bowl. But I would argue Top Chef is bigger than the Super Bowl. Oh yeah, no, the numbers don't say it, but our hearts say it. Our hearts yeah. say it's bigger. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to- I-, I can I can only say this: Tom Calicchio is only involved in one. <laughs> um, and that's what matters. So there, this is a special season that's coming up. They're doing something really special because it's season 20. Uh, it's world all-stars, which means mm-hmm. that finalists and runners-up from Top Chef competitions all over the world are going to be competing. So you've, you're, you have like you know people from Top Chef Mexico, uh, Top Chef editions in Europe and whatnot, um, going up against some of the Top Chef contestants that we know and love from our Top Chef U- U.S. Of a, mm-hmm. um, yeah, that is exciting. I, I and I think you might be about to ask me my thoughts on this on this season, and I'm happy to share them. But I think the fact that they did an international all stars uh, uh, kind of dynamic for this one is huge. Is huge. Yeah, I mean, I mean, let us know your thoughts. Don't don't wait for I me mean, to ask. I literally, I mean, when I first heard that the city's going to be London, I don't know if we said that right. They're going to be based in London for this one, and I was immediately like, "Fuck that!" Top Chef America is a show that takes us all over the country, helps us get to know cities like Portland, uh, DC, whatever, much better, Miami, obviously bigger cities and bigger places, which are a hub for the competition. But then they like go out into like rural areas, into neighborhoods you don't see, and you get to know America a bit better. And I was like, I don't give a shit about London. Why are you doing this in London? That's like a, like restaurants that we're not going to easily go to, cities that we're not, a city that it's like quite expensive to head to and explore and like follow the path of the competition. But they saved it. They saved it by making it an all-star a season. Having Don Burrell, runner-up for Portland, and Buddha, winner for Houston, come through and compete is something I'm personally excited for. Amar, who was a judge, uh, judge contestant on a couple seasons coming back, can't wait to see him. And I think having those kinds of contestants in London, still not ideal that, it, that London is the choice, but I think it's going to be a much more compelling show. I, yeah, I mean, look, I never really got your antipathy towards London as a city for Top Chef. I think it's a perfect Top Chef city. And look, Ugh. we've been – they've done 19 seasons of this show. They've been all across this fair land. They've been to Kentucky. They've been – you know, they've they've even done Top Chef flyover country for crying out loud. So <laughs> I feel like, I feel like you know, it's time to, to hit the reset button 
and they're hitting the reset button, going going to London, and then they'll come back and you know revisit some locations, go to some new places. I'm I'm all for it. I think it's going to be a great season. I, like, look, I, I still this is fundamentally rooted in xenophobia. I suppose this is this is we could have gone back to New York City. Places have transformed over time, like from the from the early twenty year seasons. Or I think there's are more compelling food cities than London out there, man. I was in London in twenty nineteen actually. And was, you know, look, I, I understand it's like a great city and I didn't hit every like beautiful restaurant in London there is to hit, but this didn't, just didn't grab me in the same way. If we'd gone to Mexico City or I don't know, Lisbon, someplace cool uh, and like interesting and vibrant, London to me is like a staid New York City knockoff. And yeah, that shot's fired. Um, <laughs> so well, <laughs> that's, that's, I'm, still, I'm still disappointed. I'm still disappointed a little bit, but I am I'm much more compelled given the, the design of the season and the contestants involved. London as, as a New York City knockoff is a hot take uh, on a geopolitical level. Is today. It? I don't know. I, I don't know. <laughs> this podcast was ready for, but uh, yeah, okay. So we've talked a little about the contestants who are going to be on this on this season. Uh, you mentioned familiar faces: Don Burrell, uh, Amar Santana, and of course, the man who almost destroyed your relationship, Budalo. <laughs> yeah yeah and i can't i should also say even despite the uh despite the way it went last year and despite the location in london i am very excited for a top fantasy top chef round two which is definitely happening uh, and it's even more perfect that buddha is in it so i can yet again take him above emily and uh put my relationships on the ro- relationship on the rocks once again yeah very for, looking forward for- to that for a little bit of context, we did a Top Chef fantasy for the uh, for the first time last year, and Saul uh, pretty much tricked his significant other into no. not picking Buddha, and no, he's picked no. Buddha for himself and no. won the competition because of it. So this is ridiculous, borderline libel. This is not how it went down. Yeah, look, and all is fair in love and Top Chef is what I always say. Uh, I, I, th- well, look, I, I think, uh, we should definitely do a crossover episode with those guys that pack your knives. Um, so, you know, I'll, I'm, I'm throwing oh, it yeah. out there if they want to take us up on it. That's, that's cool. But you know, we're in high demand. So get on us quick. Look, speaking of, 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 uh, of competition food shows, there are so many out there these days. Um, it, it honestly feels like there are more competition shows than other types of food shows. Like, you know, the, the days of the no reservations and the, uh, even the ugly deliciouses of the world, they're kind of dwindling and we're just Mm -hmm. seeing more and more food competition shows. I'm curious, do you have a contender for goat food show? I mean, Goat food show, I think, does have to be Top Chef at the end of the day. I don't think it always held that mantle, though. I think really in the last decade or so, as, like, the past winners really established themselves as, like, really great restaurateurs in the field and the consistency, increasingly high consistency of the contestants on Top Chef. Um, like, if you go back to, like, early seasons, they had, like, lion cooks in there. Um, and, and, you know, like, home, even there was, like, home, almost, like, borderline home cooks Yeah, like, involved. private chefs then, type, yeah. Exactly, exactly. And they still do have private chefs, but usually they have, like, a deeper background of, like, coming from a strong restaurant history. So, like, I think today, and, and historically, it can be considered the goat, sh- goat uh, food competition show. However, I think, like, Iron Chef definitely held the mantle for a bit. Um, yeah. Master Chef probably held the mantle for a second there. Um, but I think that, that Top Chef, on the strength, largely, I think, of Padma and Tom and, and like the producers of the show has like really 
grasp the mantle of the best all time. I I've got a I, I think there's a new contender out there. Um, Ooh. Oh, I, I know what you're gonna say. Yeah. I truly love the show Tournament of Champions on Food mm-hmm. Network. Uh, yeah. So this is a, a Guy Fieri masterstroke, which most of the things he does are. But it's the reason I like it is because it's it's like a bracket style competition where mm-hmm. basically chefs go head to head against each other, and and I like it because all of the competitions are so standardized. There's like the same setting each time, the same constraints. Yes, they get slightly different briefs in terms of what they should be cooking, but it's a really great way to show two chefs going head to head. And in order to win this competition, a chef needs to like go through every single round and win each round. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like there's no opportunity to actually mess up. You have to win every single uh, uh, battle. And I think that that creates for really high stakes uh, because it's literally one and done. You could be gone and B it also makes the win feel that much better and more impressive because you've literally just taken out like four incredible chefs on your way mm-hmm. to the championship. Yeah. It's, it's, it's an interesting shout. I, there are some components that I think make a great competition show that we will walk through in detail in a second. But I think that like, it's missing a core one, which is because it's single elimination and because of the way it's structured as a whole, where chefs go one-on-one and don't necessarily compete against the entire field. They just compete against the person in front of them. There's like a, there's like a deeper sort of like relationship dynamic, a long-term rivalry building that doesn't quite happen, but people bring in their history, their qualifications. And like, obviously it's heavyweight people fighting. So it's really compelling in that way. But the, I would frame tournament of champions as like, March Madness versus Top Chef, the NBA championship, right? A, l- a little bit. That's how, like, though, that's where the differences are. March Madness, super compelling, high stakes, but, you know, you don't end up having to compete against every single other great chef. You'd get your matchup and you'd be, yeah. now, still good, but it's a little bit of a different dynamic. And so I'm, I'm a, personally like a more of an NBA finals guy. I want to see everyone, like, most everyone compete for the best, or at the very least, have like a you know, the, the way I'm making this analogy is that, like, you know, there's, like, a, almost a series. You, you play against each other for multiple episodes, multiple games, and that, like, creates deeper tension, I think, in some ways than a single elimination. But episode by episode, Tournament of Champions is pretty great. Yeah, it's a, it's a good point. That that sort of, like, long-term narrative that forms during a show like Top Chef or even Master Chef is mm-hmm. – is compelling that, that makes it more feel more like a reality show than a, than a competition show because it you're almost them together. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It feels like there, there's a narrative that's building. There's uh there's foes, there's friends, there's good guys and bad guys. So that is actually compelling, but look, we're going to do something that I think is a first in the history of podcasts. Um, so we're making history right now, but we are going to co-design the ultimate cooking competition show. We're going to break down every single component and pick the hottest possible option for each. Um, and, and for listeners at home, we have not, we have not practiced. We have not had any conversations. We're doing this live. You're going to see, you're going to see the, the, the plane as it's being built. 
I'm excited for this, man. I do think we have the different components that make the show pull together. But I do want to take a quick step back and kind of ask you what I was alluded to earlier. In your mind, what makes a great competition show? Like, what are, like, what do you, what, and just like, give me two things, like, high level. Like, what are the things that make you feel most compelled when you're watching a competition show that we should keep in mind as we're building this out? Yeah. So to me, I think stakes is huge. Like, I think the biggest knock I have on Tournament of Champions is that it's all really well-established chefs, mm-hmm. and the prize that they're doing is charity, which, like, mm-hmm. who, care, who cares about charity, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, obviously, <laughs> no. I'm kidding. Great to do things for the <laughs> world, hilarious, but, like... hilarious of me to just be, like, strongly agreeing with you on that point, given my actual career. But, yeah. yes, that's... Uh, yeah, but I, I understand yeah, exactly you're, what you're, you're saying, you're, right? Your your actual career is a charity case. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, yeah, no. So what I mean by that is the stakes of them getting money for charity just don't doesn't feel personal enough, you know? Like what I remember yeah. from the early seasons of Top Chef when they had like line cooks and whatnot, it was a life-changing amount of money for these folks. I mean, how much yep. money are you making working as a line cook? And if you and if you suddenly get a hundred thousand dollars or two hundred and fifty thousand dollars from Sam Pellegrino for winning Top Chef, that that could really change your fortunes. It could take you to the next level in your career. It could really help your family who who you don't know what situation these people are in. So that is like that stakes right there, you know. That's right. That's right. That Top Chef. Part of the reason that I think is the Goat Show now is it's a kingmaker, right? Like if you yeah. win Top Chef, even if you get on Top Chef and are finalist, like it it transforms. Like even for established chefs, like your level of presence and and acclaim in the field. And I think as you were mentioning Tournament of Champions, like the way Tournament Champions gets closer to Goat level is if it becomes a real kingmaker show. If somehow like the way they're able to design the prize or like build prestige for the show. It really means something deep to those top level chefs who are competing and they go, yeah, hell yeah. I'm, I am the NBA champion this year. And like, I got the belt and that really means something in a way that like translates beyond the show. Yeah. And I think just having like charity be it is not enough. I don't know for them. It's, I don't know if it's money, if it has to be something else, like, there's, no, there they, should be some like branding marketing yeah. opportunity or whatever, but like, yeah, they they make a big deal of like having the belt and stuff and whatnot, and they, they like mm-hmm. you know in the straight to camera interviews talk about how big a deal that is to them. Do I believe it? No, um, it, it's it's a big deal in the context of the show, but not necessarily beyond it, right? Like, I don't know if they're putting the belt up like on top of the restaurant <laughs> on the name of the restaurant <laughs> in front of the door, right? Whereas yeah. top step, I think the wind translates be beyond like, the show. Yeah diners would be like oh my god i had no idea brooke brooke williamson wrestled uh yeah yeah so to me you ask the question i think stakes make it interesting and then personalities right like the yeah. personal yeah. the personalities of the people competing the personalities of the judges the hosts like there, there's that human element too like there's nothing worse than one of these shows when all the contestants are duds you know what makes it interesting is when you have those like kind of wild card characters, I mean, that's why, you know, Gordon Ramsay is so popular. He's, yep. he's the show. Uh, so I, uh, to me, those are the two things. What do you think? I think those are, I think I would actually name maybe the same two things as the core components of what makes the show great. I think there are other like things like, you know, 
the creativity in terms of design of the um, of the competition and the tasks that chefs have to do. I think Tournament of Champions does a great job there. Um, I think things like the host, who's the face of the show, how it's produced are all like subcomponents. But at the end of the day, what you want to know is if someone wins this, is it like meaningful? And like on the way to the win, am I seeing some like real drama slash like, like you know, human human elements of competition happen along the way? Yeah. Um, so, yeah. yeah. Okay. Without further ado, then let's get into our cooking show. Uh, right. What we're going to do is we're going to go. We're going to go category by category to talk about which would make for the most interesting and exciting and compelling category. So let's start with the types of competitors we would want to see on the show. So the options here we've kind of already talked a little bit about, but, you know, there, there's established chefs. You know, you could get like uh, – you could get like uh, the David Changs of the world, the, uh, the Brooke Williamsons, the Voltagios, the people we've all seen and love. Um, you could get up and comers. They're the people who are like line cooks, sous chefs, who are maybe, you know, working in interesting and exciting places, but haven't quite made it yet. Or maybe it's like people who are in charge of like really small restaurants who are, you know, maybe making a little bit of noise, but who, who really have ambitions that are large. There's, of course, novices, people who have never cooked before, uh, which mm-hmm. makes which, – which is uh, Worst Cooks in America on Food Network. That's a show that has contestants like that. There's uh, celebrities. Uh, there's uh, also – you know, we could get weird with it and do disgraced chefs, um, <laughs> <laughs> which, which uh, can, you know, cancel kitchen. That could be an idea. Of, uh, yeah. <laughs> So. Shit, I, I kind of love it. And there's a deep bench. There's actually a deep bench you can go to. There's a deep, deep bench for Cancel Kitchen. Um, what, what do you think? I, I have a take on. I have a take on this, but uh, I want to hear what you think first. Yeah, my, I, I, my, mine is really the like the up and comer who has other well established credentials, which is look kind of the Top Chef model. But like you look at the James Beard semifinalist list, we walk through that plus you know some other notable, maybe not right. I mean, one of the big conversations of the award show piece was that there's great people doing food that are not recognized. And is there a way we can like, you know, scope out the influencer field and like the more neighborhood spots to find another up and comer, a couple of other up and comers to join them. But that's who I want to see. And I think it's in part because those are the folks that have a place to make a leap, which, which speaks to the, uh, the stakes of the show. If you're already yeah. going to like the top established, most talented and famous chefs, and it's cool to watch them compete for sure, but they're already at the top of the game. So it's really hard to find a level of stakes that makes it meaningful beyond that. For me, I yeah. want to see, I want to see competence. I want to see talent and I want to see folks who like are going to burst onto the scene and take that next step. Okay. I, I tend to agree with that, but I have a yes and suggestion. Ooh, I feel like it could be really interesting to do a mix of both up and comers that have those credentials and really established chefs, including in some cases their bosses, like the owners of the Ooh. restaurants that you know they're working at. So you can kind of have these narratives within the arc of the show of like, you know, teacher and student, uh, the, yeah. the student becoming the teacher. Uh, perhaps there are existing rivalries that are within maybe maybe the employee fucking hates the boss you know uh <laughs> like there you just don't know but you could come up with some really interesting storylines that way 
I, I really love that. And I actually, I was going to do a yes and two kind of more when we got to the structure, but I, I, I really like this. It sometimes happens sort of accidentally. Um, like for example, we've had uh, like competitors on top chef uh, who have worked for Tom Colicchio, but that's different, right? Cause Tom is not a contestant. He's a judge, right? And that's normally the dynamic you see. I, I kind of, I really like this. And so if you're able, if you are able to get, the the uh, big name chef in or the boss in I think that's a great idea I like that a lot well so um, here's the, here's the question for you because that could be like a concept to build on do we build on this concept of like teacher and student or is that more just so like a a, a portion of the show that we weave in I right now it's weave in but let's put a pin in that I think I think it's interesting um, I, I don't I think it'd be too limiting if that's the whole show I want it to be broader than that like. Um, but I think it's something to weave in and dynamic to like intentionally go try to get on is a good idea. The one idea I want to throw at you, which is similar, but different is, uh, there was a show called next food network star yeah. uh, that was on the, G- on the Guy air. Fieri. While that, Guy, Guy Fieri, Fieri that Bord- Bordan has done that. Um, and it's kind of like the voice where you have, you know, up and coming contestants, but then a couple of mentors, who are established, you know, chefs, personalities, et cetera, who essentially at, at like one point after like a week or two pick their team. Like they go, they make, or they do a draft of the contestants and then they lead their team through different competitions and challenges and basically champion the folks that they picked uh, in, in their competition. And I yes. thought that was like a really interesting dynamic. Cause like, then they're, then they're like, it's like the coach with the arm around the shoulder of the guy. It was like a Bourdain or, you know, we could do it as more like a, uh, traditional high level chefs who are like kind of creating a team dynamic, which I think creates more chances for like human drama between team members and against and between the teams themselves, of course, and has like a cool, it was a nice, like nice touch to have like one, a personality that everyone was familiar with and seeing in seeing the kind of advice that your Bourdain's and, and others would give to up and coming chefs or give in the competition. Uh, and I think that would be like super compelling. If you had like a Voltaggio, and yeah. like Melissa, maybe even like three former finalists, right? You get Shoda, Dawn, and I mean, Gabe is probably not going back to the top chef, but like, <laughs> uh, but you get like three, four finalists like that, and they get to like pick their teams for the next season and guide them through. And like, they're kind of like competing themselves, the mentors are, but uh, like, there, there's something like I wanted to throw that out yeah. there. So it was a dynamic I thought really worked. Is, so that what you're basically describing is the voice, but for cooking. Um, yeah, yeah, but it has existed on cooking shows before. But yeah, yes, now the yeah, voice yeah. is the main, the main group that does right. that. Right, that's like the more the most like mainstream show now that does that. I I kind of think that that I I like the idea of teams. I kind of think like having the one celebrity chef or like the one more well established chef as like the coach is potentially limiting in that. I kind of like the democratization of everybody on the same level and sort of like, because I think what I'd love to see is like, I'd love to see like the young hungry chef that lives inside of Wolfgang Puck come out, you know, in, in potentially some like really ugly ways by like, (laughs) by like putting them into a competition. Right. So what if we did teams like, like a team situation, but where we mixed, you know, mixed everybody together so you know you could easily see some like young hungry line cooks jostling with the well-established chefs for like leadership in this new setting there there's actually there's a really interesting show that that i just watched with uh with emily 
recommended by my sister. It's called The Physical 100. It's on Netflix, and it's a Korean uh, competition show where 100 different contestants, each who are, like, peak athletes in their field, bodybuilding, like, Olympic sports, luge, uh, CrossFit, whatever, and they compete to see who has, like, the best overall physical capabilities. And what that show did was they had a couple episodes where everyone was competing, and then, like, at episode three, they had everyone step back and pick team leaders. They all voted for, like, mm. a team lead, and then they each got, like, to, you know, they broke out into, like, teams, uh, five, five different teams by voting for who they thought was, like, the highest, like, caliber people in the group. And that, like, created a similar dynamic to what you're describing, where we could do establish Chef Dixon with the up-and-comers to start, do a draft partway through or like a team captain selection partway through, which would be compelling because what if what if the boss chef doesn't get picked captain? Oh, I love right? that. And we can where we can even create like we'd intentionally create more teams and there are like top chefs also to make sure that there's like at least one up and comer who's a team lead. But then the group kind of after seeing a couple of days of competition could say like, hey, look, you know, I know Bobby Flay's here, but he's been kind of fucking up in the competition sort of <laughs> environment, right? And so Bobby Flay doesn't he's get been, picked and has something been- like. He's also been hitting on everyone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's also true. And then we can see which chef likes to have a bit of sexual harassment on their team. There's a ton of dynamics that could be built out of this. But I think I think there's something here where I like having the democratization, but then at one point, teams have to be picked. And there's yeah. like that, that makes a last pick happen. That makes like a drama of, oh, my, I'm not picking my boy because even though I like him, like I don't know if he can really like take me to the, to the mountaintop. And that like could really be something. Okay, oh, so we're, we're so, so good, okay. this dude. Dude, cut us a check, like, HBO. Honestly, you know, seriously, come <laughs> at us, come at us with that check, HBO. Okay, so to recap, where we are right now, so we've established we're going to have a mix of up and comers and established chefs, including where possible line cooks or cooks and their bosses or the people that own their restaurants to sort of create interesting power dynamics. We're going to introduce teams at some point during this competition including doing things like drafting team captains for those teams which creates interesting situations where established chefs might not get picked for teams they might not get picked as captains um and it creates an interesting democratization are we are we am i am i correct in where we're at yep uh, you're, you're exactly correct i can already see the rivalries and like you know, the animosity building and also the heartwarming teamwork and friendships on the flip side. Yeah. This is already the best show I've ever heard of. Yeah, I think so too. I think it deserves, it's going to get an EGOT. Um, okay, so <laughs> what, are, what are the stakes for this show? That's what we need to discuss. So to me, to me there are two, two, two directions we can go in, but now I'm thinking there may be three directions. Okay, one direction is obviously monetary right we've talked about how like a significant monetary prize like top chef has for the people involved is is a good stake because it could be a life-changing amount of money it, it it could be interesting if we could talk about this but since there are teams if like they have to decide at the end how to split it up amongst the team and that can create for mm. some interesting drama but so that's that's one direction we can go in the monetary route now, here's another interesting direction is what if we made the stakes enormous? Like I'm talking potentially world saving and here's what I mean. <laughs> like what if we almost split up the teams by like nationality and each, <laughs> each team was like competing for like a 
billion dollar grant from the UN to like <laughs> stave off the effects of climate change in their country or something like that. Uh, I, I mean, conceptual. Well, actually, you know what? I, I, like, it's a funny idea, but think about this. That stake is actually sort of charity-ish, right? It's not personal enough. It yeah. has to be a combination of, like, well, I like, I like, I like well, the big thinking, for sure. Well, it's got to be, like, personal. Here's the thing, though. It could become incredibly personal if, like, that country starts to tune in to the to the show and is like, <laughs> oh, my God, these chefs are fucking it up for our entire country. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then they start to get death threats and stuff. Like, really, it could, it could get pretty personal. <laughs> This is basically like this is now becoming a world. Cup. Okay, by the way, something I think we need to do is like, I mean, there are I, I I like have a bunch of other concepts that we're not going down the line of. We should put bookmarks in because I think this idea and the stakes of the idea is a bookmark. It's like a, once every four years, there's a competition show that comes together for a billion for a country, and everyone in the world tunes in to see how their cuisine stacks yeah, up it's and like, like it's, gets the money. It's like the Hunger Games, but literally. Like, like the food games, you know. <laughs> Should we include physical violence in our show? I think at some point, yeah. Yeah. I mean, nice, we, we haven't nice discussed how captains get. We, we haven't discussed how captains get selected. <laughs> oh, by the way, also uh, before we go go on, uh, so w- what I will say is my my preference for stakes right now for our show would be the personal monetary slash like branding increase prize. I think that's like the most effective way of doing it. But something you said made me think you were like, oh, do we split up the monetary prize among the winning team? But the question is, does a team win or does a team like go through the middle 10 episodes of the show? And it's whether it's like last team standing and every, like the, the last five have to compete against each other or like, you know, at some point does the team break up and we get into individual competition again at the very end okay. so that there's okay. a single guy on top of the mountain. Uh, he, here's, how, here's how I think we do this, okay? Okay, let's, let's settle monetary prize. I agree. Saving the planet with a billion dollars from the UN, not personal enough. Um, <laughs> so we're going to go with the, in, with the monetary prize. And I think the, the winning team should get the prize. But then after – that prize has been quote unquote awarded. There's an F boy Island style twist <laughs> where, where basically they say there's one more competition left and it's the team has to compete against itself. And there's only uh-huh. one person left at the end of the mountain and it's on them to decide, do they keep it all or do they split it amongst the team? I love where this is going. I, I so for first of all, I also need to put a pin in F Boy Island because uh, an out there show concept was like a bachelor style food competition, but everyone also fucks. I think fucking is huge <laughs> in a show, and so I think I want to loop back at the end once we've designed our own show and build out a couple of uh, different kinds of concepts. But I, I imagine this: the team wins, they get the prize, and then each team member there's like a blind tasting competition, right? And each team member has to go into their own like little kitchen, make their perfect dish, come out, and whoever our judges are, which we will get to in a second, will decide who blindly had the best dish, and that person gets to do exactly what you described. Yeah, take the money for themselves or distribute it with the team. Yeah, I think that's it. It, it creates d- division amongst the most unified people on the show. And- but it also creates a whole different tension. I mean, we could only, if this is a surprise, we could only do the surprise for like one season. 
<laughs> because then everyone would know what the deal is. But like, if people were aware that this is what happens at the yeah. end, it also creates some interesting dynamics within no, totally. the team as they go along. I, that's why I think we get the post of bo- best of both worlds. I think we keep it as a surprise for the first season, and then the next season, everybody knows it's coming, but it'll create fun dynamics. Yes. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, we I, just, I love this. I love we this just, so much. We just spoiled the, se- this, the first season for all of the <laughs> listeners, but that's okay. Okay, so I, I'm loving this so far. Let's talk about – one thing we haven't talked about is the type of competition. Like what are, what are the actual challenges? Like what are the teams doing? This is, this is like the hardest thing to do on the fly, I think. Because what I'm trying to do is like look through – like for, for example – like, I think Top Chef has a pretty solid structure in general. However, us having eventually a couple teams changes it up a little. The only thing I'll say is, like, look, I do think the, like, uh, some combination, like, picking the best of existing shows and, like, coming up with our own ideas. Like, could, there could be a chopped challenge at one point, right, between the teams yeah. if we get, like, a crazy ingredient coming in. I like, I really like how Top Chef, like, tries to integrate, like, the foods of a region, right? The, the Portland episode where they go to the, um, indigenous tribe and like like cook with their food so awesome right and I do think like the different structures of like those kinds of things is the basic so essentially like it wouldn't be a it wouldn't be like a like let's let's say what it's not it's not tournament of champions one on one single elimination style of course yeah agreed. Um, it's not it's not always chopped it's not always you know set in the kitchen I'd say I think we want to like get in and out we want to be creative but I think what we would we would so I don't know what exactly the competition would be. I do think it should be diverse, is what I'll say. I think like Top Chef even has a quick fire the main challenge structure for every episode. I think we'd want to play with that. We wouldn't always want quick fire main challenge. Some days we could do a big one big main challenge, like for example, um, Restaurant Wars. Restaurant yeah. Wars is one episode uh, a season for Top Chef, but I think there could be other challenges in that lane. Yeah, uh, that that's like mix it up more often. That's no, bro. That's as far as I've gotten. Yeah. Bro, I think we want every episode to feel like Restaurant Wars. Yes. Like yeah. Rest- well, Restaurant Wars yeah, yeah. is is the most exciting episode of Top Chef where they're basically go- getting in teams and operating and starting their own restaurant in one episode. I'm not saying we do an actual Restaurant Wars every episode. Right. I'm just saying like every episode should feel like today's the day. We've got an exciting new challenge that is going to – scare you absolutely shitless and you've really got to come together as a team to do this i i kind of think what if it's like kind of pitched as like a decathlon or something like that Hmm. where it's basically like 10 episodes every single episode they're doing an insane team challenge a la restaurant wars maybe one is literally restaurant wars but another is like we're we are flying you to Afghanistan, where we're no longer having a war. Okay, but take it back. Take it back to 2015, and we're flying you to Afghanistan and dropping you in an army barrack where you have to feed a thousand troops and, and defuse they... an IED at the end. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So something like that. Yeah, just Gordon Ramsay defusing an IED. That come on, that's great. <laughs> Great television. That's great TV. That's great TV. One way or the other. Yeah, I, like, I, I do like the idea of like having it. Have, I like the, the the decathlon structure. I think is a great idea. And but also, of course, in a way where you don't know. I think like having a theme for each episode. Like Restaurant Wars has a theme, and it's like it's obviously you know it's Restaurant Wars. But a big part of it is that you have to think beyond the food itself. You have to think about structure. 
uh, roles, how you do service, all those things. I do think there should be like maybe three of the 10 should be really purely, maybe even four, right? It's a food competition. Should be purely food-based challenges in some way, whether it's using crazy ingredients, whether it's doing something like, you know, you're, you're serving a, a community uh, that you are, are completely new to the cuisine, blah, 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 They're, uh, whatever, your equipment limitations, all that stuff. But then like a good chunk of them are just like you're saying, those like totally out there, different kinds of dynamics. Um, and, and, and in a way where like folks can't like anticipate and build a strategy for the competition. So Buddha, for example, I heard him talk on the uh, Pack Your Knives podcast, had done so much studying on Top Chef that he was able to like actually prepare in a lot of interesting ways, like yeah. how he was going to approach the competition, including for restaurant wars. I feel like we don't yeah. want that to be a, a possibility. No, I, I want this to be a show where like they're woken up at night a lot, you know, and like, <laughs> and just like you see like Wolfgang Puck in his underwear being like, I don't want to go. I'm sleeping, you know, like. That kind of thing, and like, and then he's like, he's like made to go ice fishing or something, you know, and like, like, so basically, I think that, I, okay, to recap, I think we're at sort of like decathlon, meaning like ten challenges across an episode, I uh, across a season. I agree with you. Some should should be just like purely food, but I do think there should be an element of like danger, almost to that. Yeah. <laughs> First of all, I need to say that we need so much more accent work from you on on this podcast. That was excellent. <laughs> uh, and, and yeah, I think I think we're landing in the right place. I, I would love to. I mean, I kind of want to make this show, man. I want to like think about what these ten competitions would be or ten challenges would be. And also, there's we have to think about right uh, if we do the first three weeks as like say single challenges, uh, as we were describing, right, where everyone is like one, like the whole group is competing against each other, blah blah. And episode four is when people pick, pick teams. What does it mean to have team dynamic competitions versus individuals yeah. and how can we split that up? Um, I think there's a lot of interesting ways to, to cut it. And, and some episodes have a quick fire or like a, you know, a yes. stereo elimination and some episodes just don't, right. You go deep. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. and I do think, yeah, yeah. and I do think it's important to balance the, the reality aspect with it. Like you got to get into the dynamics at the house, you know, you got to get into yep. the dynamics, yeah, yeah. uh, the dynamics the during travel. Yeah. The teams, right? right. The, the strategy sessions. So I feel like, uh, yeah, this is, this is uh, shaping up to be pretty interesting. I do think the last thing I'm going to say on, on this, there, there should be some competitions that also like, as we're designing them really like instigate the, the rivalries and the friend and fro dynamics, right? Like yeah. there's, I don't, and I don't know what the perfect things would be, but dude, like, dude, dude, like a game theory it. challenge. <laughs> well we have game theory a little bit at the end as well but yeah yeah maybe like a like a, a thing where people have to do betrayals essentially you can like betray like there's there's a decision that needs to be made that could create like real animosity or real bonds between contestants yeah. and like yeah 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 okay well i i do inflicting psychological damage uh onto contestants <laughs> so we'll keep that in there i i think we the next category i had here is setting but i don't think we really need that because we've kind of established like the setting is like all kinds of interesting and frankly dangerous locations yep well so, so uh, but, but, but are we going to do a home base so we like like so we're, are we going to do like a geographic home base again we're we are biting a lot from top chef there's a reason it's the goat show but like would we do here's your home base and then you go to different places from home base sometimes, or is yeah. it like you're in like a you're in a house, 
You don't even know where. Contestants get kidnapped from their homes. That's how the show starts. <laughs> and then they just take you places from, from that, like, safe house point. No, I, I think, like, oh, I kind of like that. I, I kind of like the safe house <laughs> idea. I think the safe house I, – I like the, the, like, initial episode where, like, just – famous chefs are getting kidnapped from their house um but i uh i'm not I, I, the way the way that you're approaching this makes me think you kind of just want a legal reason to commit a various number of crimes against people isn't that isn't that producers um it's, it's the best so, ones yeah 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 uh i i'm thinking we do um we do the safe house thing but it's like a house that like nobody knows the location of it or whatever, but it becomes famous over the course of the like seasons, almost like Xavier's house for gifted children, but like Xavier's house for like gifted chefs, you know? So like, we, always, we always go back to the same house. Yeah. Yeah. But the, the okay. chefs just yeah, don't yeah. know. They, they obviously get, nobody knows where it is. Their families don't know where it is. Nobody knows where it is. Yeah. I like that. I like that. <laughs> and that's that's home base, right? And like, and it's like an amazing place too, right? Amazing yeah. place where we can have competitions there, and it has everything you need. But you can also uh, drug our contestants and fly them to uh, war zone, as you said. Oh, dude, there should absolutely be an episode where they have to do everything high on shrooms. <laughs> yes, I love that. I don't know how yeah. well, like, interper- like, like a very introspective, psychoactive drugs trans trans television but we'll find a way we'll find a way we yeah we'll find out. a way we'll find a way we'll add some special effects um okay <laughs> i'm liking this okay judging how first of all let's talk about who the judges should be and how they should be judged i mean one thing i definitely think works really well from tournament of champions that top chef does not have is blind taste testing mm-hmm. yeah yeah i think you, blind gotta re- yeah you gotta remove all bias yep Yep, I like that. I like that a lot. I also for so a question for you to start. Obviously, in Top Chef, you have Tom and Padma uh, and Gail as you know core consistent judges, and then one guest judge coming in. Do we want to have the same judges every season? And if so, how do we want to have? And if like how many like guest judges coming on? And I have a specific take on this as well. I was thinking it makes sense to have a cast of judges that the audience can expect to know. Um, mm-hmm. So. Yeah. You know, at least three or four that are always there. Uh, yeah. But I'm definitely open to the, like, really out-of-the-box guest judge. Yeah, and I, I am too, but I think what's critical for the – so, agree. So, I think there should be two to three consistent, always there, every season chefs that we build relationships with. But then one to two – I think it should be two rotating guest judges who come in each season, but they stay for the season. And the reason why I say that is one of my frustrations with Top Chef – is that a guest judge who's been there for one week gets to have like, and look, it might not be the worst idea for a couple of reasons, but like they, 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 they parachute in, they don't know full context. They see something and then like, you know, don't know the contestants well and they hop out. I think having like they did in the Portland COVID season, the top chef, like some, at least a half season or part season consistency is really, really interesting because I think it's good for the chefs to know the contestants a little bit. Maybe there's one, maybe we do like, you know, our two main chefs who are judges who are there every season, one season long guest judge who's like an interesting personality and one weekly guest judge who hops in and out. Because, of course, the benefit of having the guest judge yeah. in is that they don't have like pre- previous bias. Right. But yeah. I think some level of previous bias isn't the worst thing in the world. 
Yeah. No, I like that. I like that. So do you have any recommendations for who you'd like to see as the, as the, as the mainstay judges? Shoot. I mean, I really want to think about that. I mean, Tom and Padma just looms so large in the mind that's hard to like step away, but let me think about that. What I will say real quick is the, the weekly guest judge should be a celebrity. I think that's fun. Yeah. I think it's like fun when it's like some like pop culture, not necessarily foodie guy. I kind of hate when it's some restaurateur who like thinks they're so big for their britches out there on Top Chef. I think it should be like a chef, a, a celebrity, like a, you know, celebrity that has like some interest in the food or the competition or whatever comes in for that one week. And that's like a fun yeah. dynamic. Yeah. I, I think the season long guest judge should be a, a maybe actually, I feel like they should be a past winner. Ideally, or past contestant. I think that's yes. I think that's great. That's great. Past contestant, past winner, past runner-up, who could almost speak to them on the level of I know exactly what you've been through when I was when when I was in Nam. This is how I got through it. Yeah, (laughs) that's and that's Um, that's why like when they did that in Portland uh, for Top Chef for due to COVID reasons, I thought that was amazing that like Melissa or Amar could speak to like could be like wow, I really appreciate what you guys did with Restaurant Wars here. I remember how hard it was back then, right? I think that's cool. Man, our two mainstays. <sighs> I I have some names to float by you, and you can tell me what you mm-hmm. think, okay? Yep. I am a big fan of Joe Bastianich. I do not know who that is. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. He is, he is the, hold on, uh, hold on. Let me do some quick research here. He's the bald guy from MasterChef, and ah. he just – Ooh. He br- he brings such a drama to the way he judges food that I feel would be pretty apropos for this show. He, you can never tell if he's gonna like something or not. So he he would be perfect as like the emperor at a Roman gladiator contest who has to give the <laughs> thumbs up or the thumbs down. And I think he would be a great fit for this. I so. I've seen, so I am not terribly mad at this. I think he needs, if, if he's going to be our first choice, our second choice person has to have, a, a, like, have, have like the personality component to them because he's like a, like, like you said, deadpan, straight eye. You don't know what he's thinking and like has that. Tom Colicchio kind of has it too, but he's even more personable now over time. But like he, ha- he brings that like cold, stone like demeanor. I watched one season of MasterChef Kids, I'll say real quick which is has your, your friend Joe plus Gordon Ramsay on. And I watched the whole season through and I, I didn't like Joe's choices as we went along. I think Joe was at the very end, there was a little cute little girl who did versus a, like a prodigious young, like French chained, like eight year old boy. And the girl definitely won. The girl definitely won the final episode. Gordon recognized it. Gordon was like, she cooked a better meal. But Joe and the other dude who seemed to just be like beta to Joe and just like would do everything Joe said because Joe is such a strong personality voted for the dude just because they, I think, like had the bias towards like his like whatever. He's a little dude chef. We like like to see that vibe. And he and they didn't judge the food and they judged the guy instead. And I didn't like that is all I'll say. But for now, given given our lack of options on top of my head, Joe is Joe is okay by me. Think of think of the drama that kind of thing could create, though. It's like when a referee sure. makes a bad decision, you know, and like the crowd goes wild. Like, I kind of like that he doesn't make flawless decisions, you know. So, uh, anyway, so I, I think I think the more important thing is who's going to be the person next to Joe who provides the the fire to his ice. So yeah, and do we do we need like 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 Guy Fieri 
or uh, or or do we need or do we need someone like with a bit more gravitas but that has that has some big personality yeah i think man like look the padma lakshmi is such a 101 i think like she she like has it all in terms of like seriousness and esteem in the field but also like you know friendly vibes i have i mean I'm struggling. I mean, if we had if Bourdain was still with us, RIP, he would be someone who I would take over Joe. He'd be the ideal, I think, kind of person yeah. for this. I'm trying to think back to like, uh, oh, you know, <laughs> there's like a, you know, there's like the Richard Blazes <laughs> of the world out there who kind of have have some like kind of perkiness to them. There yeah. are <sighs> trying to go through folks I've seen on other shows. I don't know if there's. I mean, look, maybe we just poach Padma, man. Maybe we just poach her. Let's poach Padma for now. Let's let's yeah, yeah. let's poach Padma for now. Let's do Padma and Joe Bastianich for now. Um, and uh, in terms of host, that's a really interesting question because I, I like yeah. this for Padma because she's obviously become a host and a judge on Top Chef. But I I like that she just gets to be a judge now. Who we bring on as a host? I almost feel like we need a war correspondent. Are we bringing on Anderson Cooper? <laughs> Ryan Seacrest has I think recently left the Kelly and Ripper show. Uh, Kelly and Ryan show in the morning. He's looking for work. Could be a good option. No, not really. I don't want Ryan Seacrest. Uh, man, I do actually. You know what? I, I, I you might have been being facetious. I like the idea of a non-food person kind of coming I, I in, like like a like a different kind of journalist or something. Yeah. No, an idea I had was he might be t- like Stanley Tucci. Could be cool. Ooh, ooh. He he's like. I feel like he could have a lot of compassion, empathy for people, which could be really important in this kind of a scenario. Yeah. Um, so, but he also has a gravitas that makes you feel how important something is. I think he can bring like the, no, this is serious. Like this is what we're doing here is real and it's hard and like be aware of that. Yeah. 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 So that's, so that's a little one of... heavy. I should also say <laughs> a little, no, little too heavy on the show. Oh yeah, that's right. We poached her. We poached her. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, I, I yeah. That, as a host. I like that. That's that's one option. That's what that's one option. So right now we've got Stanley Tucci as our host. We've got Joe and Padma as our judges. Um, and uh, the last thing we need before we decide who to pitch it to is a name for the show. Hmm. This puts this makes you. Let's see how quick you can think. I, I, just because of the way we framed it, there's like so many like battle royale slash like death match names. But I think that's too that's too hyperbolic. Yeah. Oh man. Also, just had a funny thought. Hillary Clinton isn't doing anything. What if we just had Hillary Clinton hanging out and just like being <laughs> there, <laughs> being in the court? She has no power, no judging power, but she's also there just to chime in with her takes on food. Um, I don't know why that's, that thought like crossed my mind. But I thought it was a funny I- image. Uh, I like the idea of whoever she votes for doesn't win, like just by default. <laughs> like, <laughs> if Damn, she votes for we gotta, someone, we gotta cut this part of the show, dude. <laughs> uh, <laughs> leave, leave it in. Leave uh, it in. All right, I think we can, for now, maybe we should just tentatively call it the decathlon. I kind of like. I I don't hate that, right? Or like, there's like maybe an Olymp like a thing that gets a suit from the Olympics. There's like a that's like kind of the level, like the like Olympic decathlon, like yeah. I don't know. I feel like they're too corny. Top Chef is so perfect, man. Damn. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, there, we could literally call it something like the Hunger Games. Um, <laughs> that's actually not yeah. bad, man. Yeah, the, it's something like that. 
the the, yeah, the yeah. Hunger Games, the Decathlon, something like that, which really, you know, conveys the gravitas of it. <laughs> uh, I, I, I will stick with. I like Hunger Games, man. Hunger Games. Okay, and oh, finally. Also, oh, yeah, keep going. Oh, no, 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 never mind. Keep going. Keep going. Okay, I was gonna say, what network are we pitching it to? I, I think I mean, look, I, HBO, man. I might be like biased, but HBO because it's it like has quality standards next to it. It has a huge budget. You can do like things you're not allowed to do on cable TV on it, right? Yeah. Which might be useful for our Warzone pieces. Oh, then, cursing, like, cursing would be crucial cursing to has, this. Ha- yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Now, uh, I know like Vice is about to run out of money. I believe <laughs> they're like going out of business. But the other flip would be like a, like Vice, which is like invested heavily in food. Uh, content would also not be a bad home i think yeah yeah i i feel like vice would be okay but i feel like hbo is the level that professional lives um yeah so i i would go hbo or you know even a showtime like let's let's get showtime into the food game i just want this to be like cinematic i want it to be acclaimed you know i want it to be like you know, I, I want this to have like uh, some weight behind it. So HBO, Showtime, come at us. Pre- premium, premium cable is where we're aiming. Yeah, Pre- we're exclusive. Premium cable. Yeah, we're exclusive. Yeah, yeah. All right. So just to recap real quick before we close, the show is called something like the Decathlon or the Hunger Games. It is essentially a show where it's up novices line cooks with expert chefs we put oh, them on edit, t- edit, edit. no novices fuck novices no 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 novices. no novices no no I, yeah. I meant i meant like line cooks up and comers mm. yeah. yeah 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 sure sure yeah. that's what yeah, i meant yeah. we put them on teams with team captains where they have to do things like draft their own teams draft their own captains and we'll create drama it's going to be basically like 10 episodes of completely unique challenges, including things like getting flown to war zones to cook for soldiers, going ice fishing and having to like, I feel like we need a fan from the, from the war zone piece. <laughs> There's too much war zone in this podcast. But yeah. okay, you, you said it, you, we're going. You, you know what I mean? Just like really, really kind of extreme, intense, difficult things as teams and as individuals. Um, the type of thing where they get woken up in the middle of the night to go places on, on planes. We want drama. Um, we're also, in terms of stakes, it's going to be a very large monetary prize that at the end of the show can either be kept by an entire team or can be divided amongst them uh, or, or, or can only go to the, the grand winner who wins the final competition. Um, it's going to be on HBO or Showtime. And it's going to be judged by Joe Bastianich and Padmalakshmi, and it's going to be hosted by Stanley Tucci. I, I love it. I'm watching it already. I'd also say, but like literally, as you were saying, the Warzone thing, a Bear Grylls episode, man, where we have to yeah. go, they have to go like hike through to some I like, mean, crazy shit, kill a bear. That's yeah, a I mean, a great, a great, a great guest judge too. Oh, exactly. Yeah, perfect for the week. Yeah. Um, really quick before we before we jump, I want to know first of all if you had any other concepts percolating around that we didn't touch on. And the only reason I'm asking you is because I want to share mine. I think I, was, I got some great ones in the back pocket that are hemi- semi formed. Though honestly, I was just gonna rip uh, tournament of champions, uh, but I'm so glad we didn't because this is so much better. This is so much better. I think I think there is room for a bachelor slash f boy island reality show that integrates food in some way in the competition and the people fuck man fucking is huge <laughs> in tv 
we got to have it. We're on HBO already. Yeah. It's like, you know, like, imagine F-Boy Island, but the three ladies only don't get to see the boys. They only get to taste the food. And they pick yeah. their boys yeah. tasting the food. And you got to go through, you go on dates or whatever. And then, uh, <laughs> like, there's there's way a ton of ways to make this entirely inappropriate and, like, uh, super fucked up. But that's, like, that's huge for TV. That's one. No, that's, that's kind of a joke one. No, sex sells. And I don't think that should be a joke. In fact, if we There's can... a, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, if we can <laughs> infuse an element of that into our current show, I'm here for it. Yeah, I think we could. I think I think there's a way to do that. And also, my final thought, which is more more serious, I think would be interesting, was uh, like you bring together a bunch of restaurateurs, like business side of food and chefs, and they and it essentially turns into like a, a season of Shark Tank. With it's that's more like a restaurant wars every week, but not like not to the full extent. I want to see chefs and restaurateurs work together to pull together like interesting restaurant uh, concepts and there could be a different category or style of restaurant each week. Then you got Mark Cuban. He's got to be there. And like a couple other judges, chefs, restaurateurs, business people who essentially vie for like, like how, like do bidding on it the way they would bid. Now, again, this is a semi-baked concept. There's a lot of stuff that have to be figured out and how it works, but I think that'd be really interesting. It's kind of like what you and your fiance like to do with me every so often when you pitch restaurants and ideas and menus yeah, uh, and like, there's some kind of like selection process at the very end, the winning restaurant gets funded. Right. No, uh, I love or the that. winning duo. I, yeah. I think there's a show kind of like that, that exists in, in the UK called something like million dollar restaurant or something like that. But oh, I, interesting. I would, I think shark tank for restaurants is a great idea. And it, it gave me an idea for one final concept, which is what if you had, uh, a show where like the line cook goes against the owner and if the line cook wins they now own the restaurant oh no i was actually gonna say when we were doing steaks for hours given we have both owners and line cooks or sous chefs or whatever that though if, if if a line cook beats their owner they get the restaurant yeah i think it's that's like hilarious. Beat, it's like beat bobby flay but with with, 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 with it's called keys to the kingdom and it's like and we fucking go one-on-one for all stakes. Now we have to figure out why any boss would ever do this, <laughs> but, but I love Dude, the idea. It's, it's for, uh, it's just for, to feel something, you know? Um, that's right. I feel like we, we have, we have a whole list of shows here we could do. So I, I think countdown media is off to a bright start. It, it really is looking forward to our meeting with Showtime and HBO probably next month. Uh, and becoming a millionaire, man. This is like, yeah. like we'll, we'll be kingmakers in the, in the yeah. entertainment industry. You will we're be always destined to be. You will be a charity <laughs> case no longer. <laughs> thanks, thanks for joining us, cousin Saul. This was, uh, this was enlightening. This is a good time. I, man, I want to keep this conversation going in the future. When we get, when we, when we get to Top Chefs season twenty, we'll certainly talk about it, and let's keep building on some uh, great food show ideas. Thank you to Christy Vega, thank you to Cousin Saul, and thank you to you, listener, for listening to the LA Countdown, the podcast. If you like what you heard, go to wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a follow and a review. 